Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 134 of the Chills at Will podcast. What a pleasure to be joined across the Zoom screen by Kirsten Chen. A little bit about her. She's the New York Times bestselling author of three novels. Her latest over her right shoulder there is called Counterfeit. It's out now from William Morrow, HarperCollins US, and in the UK, it's the Borough Press. It's the June 2022 Reese's Book Club pick. That is not Reese's Pieces. That is Reese. Witherspoon. <laughs> Television rights have been optioned by Sony Pictures. Born and raised in Singapore, she lives in San Francisco. She teaches creative writing at the University of San Francisco, Go Dons, and in Ashland University's low residency MFA program. How are you today, Kirsten? Great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Do you have a University of San Francisco connection? I do. My parents are both graduates. <laughs> oh, Oh, okay. I was yes. like, that's a very specific reference. <laughs> yes. My parents are, are proud graduates. Yes. How long have you been teaching there? Oh, let's see. I started probably around 2017. I'm adjunct, so I, okay. I fill in whenever they need me. Um, but I've been teaching yeah. pretty regularly um, since 2017. All right. And, you know, I've been, uh, I'm so happy to talk to you. I've been wanting to talk to you for so long. I think first found out more about you through uh, Christian Kiefer. Oh, yes. Who shouted the heck out of you and so many compliments. And I guess you guys would teach together maybe at Ashland? Yes, he is my boss and okay. also a friend. <laughs> All, right. All right. You were not forced to say that, right? Say not that? at okay. all. He, is a, uh, he was my friend before we started working together. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Reese Witherspoon's book pick. Like, this is no joke. I mean, that's just so awesome. How has that been? Like, the whirlwind with that and just... Um, with the book being out, you know, so recently and just kind of like the whirlwind that has been. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, look, it's been fantastic. It's been, um, you know, very much a dream come true. Um, I don't even think that I dreamt of it because, the, mm. you know, with the chances of getting something like that are so slim that it's not even a kind of logical dream to have. Uh. But um, it was... Um, incredibly exciting when we found out that the book had got that Reese Witherspoon had chosen the book uh, but you know it also feels very much like winning the lottery like mm -hmm. it's it <laughs> it doesn't feel like something that I worked towards you know or that I personally made happen and it's not that I'm being modest like I'm mm -hmm. very proud of my book but sure. I also know that just statistically, you know, one book was going to be chosen that month. There are thousands of books that could have been chosen. Uh, um, you know, so it's a wonderful opportunity. And I really am trying to appreciate and make the most of it. But I also don't want to pretend that I did anything or that I have any tips for, how, you know, how to make that happen. Um, and I also think it's interesting because this is my third book mm. and I have some perspective. Sure. You know, I had a career before this happened. 
mind. Um, and I, and I was very content in my career. And mm. so, you know, I'm appreciative that, um, that this incredible thing can happen sort of mid, you know, sort of mid career. Um, mm -hmm. and that I have the perspective to kind of, uh, appreciate it, but not get swept away and overwhelmed. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So you're not, you're not popping champagne bottles every hour or something like that. <laughs> no. Okay. You're not, like an, yeah. you're not an Instagram influencer or anything like that. Nope. Not yet. at all. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for uh, letting us be seen. And I mean, us being the Santa Clara Broncos. Thank you for the shout out to Santa Clara in the book. <laughs> yes. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the, in the Bay area. Um, it go. is, you know, I, I'm not from here, but I, I do think of it as home by this point. And, um, that was actually one of the great pleasures of the book was just kind of <laughs> writing about places that, you know, very deeply. Yes. Yeah. I'm a proud Santa Clara grad. And, uh, this, this book right here was the, the fire upon us just spoke with Nick Bucola yesterday. He's another Santa Clara grad, but in the book there, I think it was like some, you know, maybe some years, the Ava sees maybe some college girls, you know, going yeah. to party and it's like, oh, they're probably from Stanford, maybe Santa Clara. And I was like, yes. yes. <laughs> All right. We oh, talk about not being from there originally, you're born in Singapore. I'd love to know about, you know, coming to the United States, you know, was it at such a young age, you don't remember Singapore? I'd love to know about um, language or languages. Are you, are you, you know, have you been a monolingual English speaker? Do you have, are, is English your second language? Um, you know, some of that. Yeah, so I actually grew up in Singapore. So I didn't move to the US um, until I was 15, which oh, is wow. and I moved for boarding school. Okay. So um, quite, quite a shift, as you can yeah. imagine, to come from Singapore and then to go to boarding school in New Hampshire. Oh. So um, that was my um, move to the US. Uh, that being said, my parents both went to college and um, did graduate degrees in the US. So they lived okay. in the US for a long time before moving to Singapore, back to Singapore, where I was born. Uh -huh. So, um, so it wasn't completely foreign. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is that um, because Singapore is a British colony, uh, mm -hmm. many of us speak English as our first language, not usually with an accent like mine. But oh. um, nonetheless, English is my first language. I also speak speak Chinese. Um, I also studied French in college and lived abroad. So, um, uh, but yes, yeah, so I am a native English speaker to answer yeah. your question. What if you have definitely have a facility with languages, huh? French as um, well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, when you come from a part of the world where everyone speaks m multiple languages, it doesn't mm -hmm. feel, um, it doesn't feel that's special, I guess. Um, yes. But I do. I mean, I love, obviously, I'm a writer. I love the English language, but I also love other languages and I love learning languages. Uh -huh. um, and I'm also really interested in accents because okay. uh, coming from Singapore, um, where um, there is a myriad of different accents, um, you know, uh, uh, a lot of people speak with a British, like if you listen to the mm. news, a, a British accent would be pretty standard. Um, there's the accent that Singaporeans use colloquially hmm. um, and then a lot of us have studied abroad in the U.S. and so there's and especially today young people have an American accent just because of television uh -huh. um, and so that I, I imagine that must have been good training ground for hmm. a writer to just kind of always be paying yes. attention to the sounds of things. Oh definitely. Winnie who's one of the main characters in the book um, she talks about like I think four things that really surprised her a couple of things that surprised her when she came to the states from China in this case, was that, was that surprising to you that you talk about like how, you know, it's kind of the stereotype and unfortunately I think it's very true, like that Americans are often very like 
closed-minded or whatever the term is be ignorant maybe in the purest sense and don't speak in a lot of other languages right you go to you know so many countries around the world and two and three and four languages was that a big surprise to you that that so many people were monolingual english speakers um less so because i think in Singapore, being a tiny, tiny country, we are always looking westward. Mm. And Singapore is a place um, that has a huge expat community because it is a very, it's kind of like, if you're going to move to Asia, make your home base, if you're going to move from the West to okay. Asia, make your home base Singapore because everybody speaks English. Uh, um, the trains run on time. It's very clear, clean. Um, and so I think in Singapore, we actually had a lot of exposure always to Western culture and okay. specifically American culture. But I do think that, um, uh, you know, Winnie's perspective is a little bit different because yes. she's from a, con- a, a much larger country and, you know, a country that's an economic powerhouse in its own right. Um, and actually a lot of the inspiration for that, for her character, um, I got from um, a summer that I spent teaching um, high school students from China who had mm. come to this intensive English camp mm. on the Stanford campus, actually. So it was kind of an elite uh, elite camp for uh, Chinese uh, high schoolers. And, and some of the details um, of uh, her character, I kind of gleaned from that experience. Yeah. Oh, how cool is that? There was one of the minor characters in the book talks about how he was in Singapore. And I don't know if it's him or somebody like throws a little trash and yeah. cleaned it up right away. So very uh, pristine, huh? That is that all of that is very true. Um, yes. <laughs> well, thank, thank you for bringing up that reminder. I taught a very short, um, you know, English language class, like you talk about for, for foreigners at, on the campus of LMU, Loyola Marymount one summer. And it was, it was mostly Brazilian, Italian, some German, but it was like, it was like if Gabe, the character from your book, it was like if Gabe were a, a foreigner, like they were so chill, like it, it was not high stakes. <laughs> They were just there to go see, you know, Santa Monica Pier and the language yeah. thing was kind of like whatever. And my, uh, some of my educational tools I was given, I remember I was given a DVD of Larry the Cable Guy. Oh, <laughs> but that's culturally interesting too, that they were huh. so chill, you know, like right. in my program, we were practicing how to write college essays. Huh. <laughs> you know what it I mean? It was not that. It was not that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's interesting. <laughs> So as you, as you, uh, you know, moved, you know, at 15 and you talk about the, the boarding school, I think of like a Tobias Wolf type of boarding school, right? Like those, that's those pretty East close. Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Was, what were you reading? Were you, you know, being, I mean, you know, very cultured in that way and worldly, even at a young age, just having lived in multiple places, were you like, oh man, let me read what's on this curriculum. Were you already like, did you already have your own style for what you were reading? What were you, what really thrilled you as a, as a young reader? Oh, you know, all the typical stuff. You obviously I fell for the great Gatsby mm. catcher in the rye, that, <laughs> that kind of stuff. You know, I think, um, because I had come from Singapore and when, uh, at the time when I was growing up in, in Singapore, so this was in the like mid to late nineties, mm-hmm. um, literature was not considered, uh, a necessarily serious topic. Like okay. all the best students went into the sciences. Mm-hmm. And then if you were good at that, then you could also do literature. So that okay. was kind of where I was, you know, like I, you had to get really good grades in math and science. And then I was allowed to kind of, you know, explore. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it was quite freeing to come to boarding school and to see that literature, um, if any, you know, it might've been the most kind of prestigious topic in my, um, in my particular school. Mm. And I think that we, um, 
we were taught to read and write quite differently because in Singapore, um, the main, uh, your entire education culminates in these national exams. Okay. Uh, and so in high school, it's the O level, it's the British, it's the British system. And so you take the O levels at the end of um, what would be the equivalent, I guess, of 10th, not 10th grade, um, secondary four. So that's seventh, eighth, ninth. Oh yeah, I guess it would be 10th grade. And then you do it again at 12th grade, these O levels and A level exams. And your entire high school career is kind of working towards those. Um, and to, I mean, to an extreme degree, like you could spend one year reading, you know, a very small two or three books that you know you're going to be tested on and you just study every line and write essays from every possible angle. Wow. Um, yes. And so, um, and so you can see why um, coming to boarding school um, and being exposed to kind of an, a more American school system was um, very, it was different. It was very different. I mean, I think um, in boarding school, that was the first time I wrote papers that weren't uh, strictly analytical, you know, mm. analytical papers, you know, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I was going to say, I don't know if I would have been a writer if I hadn't left. But I don't know if that's true because obviously we have tons of writers, tons of writers in Singapore who are highly successful, highly skilled. But um, for me, it opened my eyes to literature and made me love reading and writing even more than I already did. And then when I got to university, to college, I majored in comparative literature. And okay. that I don't know if I would have done if I'd come from Singapore. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, is it safe to say you, you were able to enjoy reading for the sake of reading a little bit more? I think so. And also like enjoy reading for the sake of reading within a, a school, uh, you know, within the curriculum, because, you know, in Singapore, sure. I was always a reader and I love to read, yeah. but I did that kind of outside of yes. school. Yes. Um, whereas, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really actually astute observation. I will steal that for something the next time I answer <laughs> a question like this, that in, you know, for the first time, like, you know, reading in school was mm. as fun as reading outside, or maybe even more fun sometimes. Yeah. Yes. You know, with Singapore being so multi multicultural, I mean, as far as I know, right, like very, very like, up front that that's one of the principles right is is yes. to celebrate the you know malay and 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 i guess indian. A, a big indian population yes, right as and well chinese etc did you did you feel represented in what you read or you know were you exposed to all kinds of multicultural literature what in, in all the different things that means what did you feel represented or was that even a uh, a concern you know not at all when i was growing up in the 90s we read almost exclusively british and american huh. authors and i think that's fairly I mean, we're a post-colonial country we were a british colony mm -hmm. um we had we've only been uh independent for 60 years you know so it's, it's a very young country sure. um so uh, no, growing up, we did not, we were not exposed to local writing, very, very little, a uh -huh. small percentage of the curriculum was devoted to that. Uh, I think it's changing. Um, and I think more and more Singaporean authors are publishing uh, internationally. So in the US and in the UK and in Australia. And so that mm. um, helps as well. Um, but no, I didn't, um, I don't think I ever read as a kid, a book set in Singapore. And um yeah, now that I say it out loud, how strange, 
you know, uh, but, uh, but obviously that's very common if you're from a small country, you know? So um, uh, I think one of the reasons it was important to me to, to set my first novel in Singapore was because of that. Yeah. As you got into to college now, now Stanford was the, was the BA, is that correct? Yes. The undergrad, yes. right? Yes. You know, what were you reading? Who was really thrilling you? The name of, the, you know, the Chills at Will podcast, the, the Chills, who are the ones who like, man, I got to reread that or I've memorized yeah. those lines, you know, who are the ones who really thrilled you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So the first one I remember uh, is Mary Gateskill okay. and um, Bad Behavior, that collection, still one of my top 10, maybe top five collections of mm. all time. Um, I think, you know, taking a, a creative writing class at Stan, my first creative writing class ever was extremely thrilling because I had not read any contemporary authors, yes, yes. you know, like coming, you know, and you know, my comp lit major, I focused on the early 20th century. So, uh, you know, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, all of those, uh, all of those fine writers, but that was not, I had not read anybody writing like in my time, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that was one of the reasons why I fell so hard for writing in that, and reading in that class, because I hadn't read contemporary authors. So Mary Gates goes one, I mean, Carver is a little bit older, but he mm. was revolutionary. Um, I, I can't even, um, I mean, I can't even think of specific stories. The very first story we read in my very first creative writing class was Mona Simpson's story, Lawns. Um, okay. I don't know if you know it, but it was taught back in the day. It was taught quite a lot, I think. It's anthologized a good amount. Now, am I um, correct? I'm sorry to interrupt. Am I correct that that's Steve Jobs' sister? Yes, you're oh, right. Yes. Okay. That's her. Yeah. Lawns. Okay. I don't lawns. know I know Lawns. All right. Um, it's, it's a really dark story. It mm. has some abuse um, in it and... Um, and I had just never read anything that felt huh. so current. And um, yeah, I mean, it was a revelation. Hmm. Wow. Um, so, you know, I wonder maybe did you have uh, Tobias Wolf is one of the in my major influences, you know, just for even for the name of the podcast, I mean, like that is from the, the story uh, Bullet in the Brain. Mm -hmm. Who were some of the professors? Uh, who who really you know shepherded you along who and then you know as you got into I believe you went into into the MFA I guess yes. just kind of like you know what what made you who or what made you say like wow I can really go, you know going from reading to writing like I'm good at this people who I respect say wow this is great they're interested they're impressed you know kind of how did you get pushed or did you push yourself kind of the writing route yeah. You know, my one Toby Wolf story is that um, when I was an undergrad, I was maybe a, a sophomore. I think I was a sophomore. Um, the one day that my story was up, Tobias Wolf was Ooh, observing my instructor. Day. Yes, workshop he was day. observing my instructor. And I had to come in and read my story out oh loud. My to Toby gosh. Wolf. And, you know, I was young. I don't I knew who he was, but uh -huh. I didn't you know, if I had to do that today, I would be much, much more nervous. But it was a, a funny thing that oh my teacher, my Ryan Hardy, showed he was the instructor and he showed up with Toby Wolf and he's like, he's just going to sit in today. And I was like, uh, <laughs> let me read you the story that I wrote uh, in two hours. Um, he was he was very nice. I mean, he was obviously observing my teacher, not me. Sure, 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 but, sure. Um, um, you know, I would say that. Um, Interestingly, in undergrad, or maybe it's not interesting, I've actually heard a lot of writers say that, I was never the most brilliant student in any class that I took. I could always point to one, two, three, 
writers who just seemed innately gifted. Um, and so I didn't put that kind of pressure on myself. And, mm. you know, it took me a couple of years to get an MFA because when I came out of undergrad, I was fully prepared to get a corporate job and to mm. kind of do that, you know, like it didn't occur to me that I could be a professional, mm. uh, that I could make a living as a writer. Um, and then even when I got my MFA, I don't think that I thought concretely about that either, which seems absurd to say, like that was, you know, like, why would you get an MFA if you didn't think that? Um, and I don't really have a good answer to it, except that I think it had to happen that way, because if I really sat down and thought concretely about what I was going to do, which was to leave a very stable corporate job to go into a very expensive MFA program, there's no way I would have gone ahead with it if I had put sure. more thought to it because it doesn't make any sense. Um, so in some ways, the fact that it was a kind of, I don't think, I don't think it wasn't, uh, I don't think it was like a, an impulsive decision, but I think it was really based on, um, I, I, I hated my job. Mm. I love being a student. I love learning. I love reading. I love writing. And I'm going to go do this because I can't think of a better way to spend my time mm -hmm. as opposed to I'm going to go get an MFA because I have this novel that I want to publish, which I didn't mm -hmm. have, by mm -hmm. the way, like I didn't go in with a novel. So, you know, um, in answer to your question, I don't think I was extremely driven, <laughs> but somehow that actually served me well, because I think with the weight of expectations, um, you're almost you know, if you put that kind of pressure yourself, like I'm going to go into MFA and then I'm going to publish my novel. Mm. Um, so many writers take a much more meandering path that, you know, right. sometimes I think that can be counterproductive to be mm. extremely driven in this particular line of work. So mm. oh, that's that, interesting. That was a yeah. rambling answer. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Very interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. You know, the meandering path, so to speak, like, did you, the, the corporate job, I mean, was that something where you were out there getting a lot of like life experience, a lot of things that went into your books? purposely or not were you like you know was it one of those jobs where you're just like oh i got an hour break here i'm gonna write a little bit like were you writing as you did the corporate and I actually, know, did i give you some some fodder yeah no so yes i have put a lot of that corporate. i was a merchandise planner at banana republic okay. in san francisco that was my first job out of college and i um am a lifelong lover of fashion and i thought i wanted a career in fashion and that's mm. why i did that which you can see a lot of that knowledge oh, has yeah. gone into this book oh yeah uh, but even in my first novel um so it's for beginners which is centered on this family business that is um the last of its kind and fighting to stay alive. A lot of my work experience went into that too, because huh. um, I have some business experience. Um, but no, you know, I didn't write at all during that time. And so when people ask me, um, you know, did, did, do I need an MFA to be a writer? Like, obviously you don't. <laughs> and most people don't. But for me, um, that's what it took for me to kind of commit fully to writing was to kind of raise the stakes to this astronomical level. Um, but I also think it's my personality. I have kind of a tunnel tunnel vision. And when I'm mm -hmm. doing something, I kind of immerse myself in whatever it is I'm doing, sure. um, which is great as a novelist, because when I'm writing a novel, I'm relentless and I, mm -hmm. I don't get distracted and I follow it to the end. But if I weren't a writer, I would not be the kind of person who would write in my lunch break. I just wouldn't. I just know myself. <laughs> right. And I didn't back then either. Yeah. Right. Well, shoot. Can you bottle that bottle that up? That's this idea of that tunnel vision, not being distracted, 
you're probably one of those great people who's, you know, off Twitter, like you're like, you know, check in every three weeks or whatever, man, good for you. But it's a double-edged sword, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I don't think it's, a, I mean, I, it's who I am, so sure. there's nothing I can do about it, but. Sure, sure. Now help me on the timeline. Was, was Soy Sauce for Beginners first? Yes, okay. that is my first book. It was my MFA thesis. Um, awesome. And then it took year, uh, you know, as, as you know, it's a long path and it took a couple of years after that before, um, I got agented and, and found my editor. What was that like to just even, you know, somebody who, you know, wasn't, you know, you talk about being driven definitely and, and focused, but you, you weren't necessarily driven to like, I am going to be a writer, you know, or bust. Like, what was that like to be like, whoa, I, that's my name on the cover and whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, by the time my first book came out, it had been a long journey. You know, I started that book in 2007. It came out in 2014. Okay. Um, and it was a book that took a really long time to sell. Mm -hmm. uh, so my agent went out with it. Um, from the day that my agent first went out with it, it took eight months for someone to finally find look yes there are people who take longer there are people yeah. who never sell their first books um, but long enough that in between my agent and I had to sit down and say like okay what are we going to do if this book doesn't sell mm. you know how do we look ahead from here um, so by the time it came out it, my you know primary emotion was relief mm. I was just mm -hmm. so glad that somebody had taken a chance on me and was mm. gonna you know give this book a uh, give this book a life um and I do think that for me, if my book hadn't sold in those eight months, I don't know that I would have had it in me to do it again, even uh -huh. though, again, plenty of people do, sure. you know, a large percentage of people have books in the drawer, in their proverbial drawers. Um, I just don't think that I would have had the grit to stick, stick with it for another five years. So, mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I got really lucky and, and I, and I, and I use the word luck purposefully because 19 editors rejected the book and one editor loved it. And it's the same book, <laughs> you know? <laughs> All it takes is one, right? Yeah. 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 And Barry, what we cannot take seems to be more, more sweeping, more, um, you know, with, with, you know, Chinese history, right. And, and like I said, more of like a, a broad view. What, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about with counterfeit too. And you answered some of that where you talked about how you had your career with Banana Republic, but yeah. how much, how much, I guess, research went into bury what we cannot take. A lot, a yeah. lot. It was the single hardest uh, thing to overcome in writing mm -hmm. the book. Um, so that novel um, for uh, listeners who haven't um, heard of it, it's um, set in 1950s Southern China. Um, and it's about a family that's torn apart because um, the family has to flee very quickly to Hong Kong. And they're told um, when they go to get the exit permits that they have to leave one of their children behind as proof that they're coming back. And so it's this sweeping historical story, as you said. Um, and it's also a really complicated period of Chinese history that I wanted to get right. Like I mm. wanted to be respectful of the complexities of that time. I didn't want to sensationalize aspects of it. You know, I wanted to just, you know, really nail that, sure. um, nail not, not only the facts, but also the, um, the, the feelings and the emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I spent, I would say, I mean, I'm just kind of, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, five years to write the book, maybe six months of solid research, mm. six to eight months of solid research. And I could have spent 10 times that amount, you know, mm -hmm. like it was one of those situations where um, 
at some point I had to just say to myself, like, if you don't stop, you'll never write the book, right? You could uh, research for the rest of your life, you know? Right. Um, and so that was really instructive too. It was just like, you know, figuring out, you know, how much was enough? When did I feel comfortable with the amount of knowledge that I had? Mm. You know, when could I accept um, that, um, that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't know everything. All of that stuff was just really helpful. Oh man. You know, as a teacher, you know, the same, the same idea, right? Like you could, you could always be doing something as a teacher. Yeah. Right. Always. But it's like, you also have to have a life and, you know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes. There's a lot of analogies. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Counterfeit 2022 publication. I wonder was like, was this like, was a lot of it written during COVID times or was it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started the book in 2017. So right after the election, um, which is, uh, you know, people have asked about the the setting, the novel is set kind of post-Trump 2019, 2018, 2019. Um, And um, I was uh, really lucky that I uh, happened to have a residency at a university in Singapore. And so um, at, during the period of time when I wrote the first draft, and so I wrote it very quickly, four months, which is fast for me, mm-hmm. um, and Whoa. then revised it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, we sold the book end of 2020, and I revised it right through the pandemic ongoing. <laughs> and um, uh, yes, and so a lot of it was written during the pandemic. Four months. That, I, that's, I don't Inspired. think it'll ever... Inspired, yes. Huh? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's uh, similar to when I said I, by raising the stakes and giving up my stable job and going to MFA mm. that gave me the focus. Similarly here, I kind of, you know, left my home, moved to Singapore for four months. And I was like, better make this count if you're, <laughs> if you're going to do this, you know, uh-huh. and, um, and it, and, and I did. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. You're saying you moved to Singapore for four months? Yes, because I was in residency at a uh, university in Singapore. And um, part of that was it was um, I taught a little bit, but really it was time to write. OK. Um, and my family lives in Singapore, so that's not a sure. huge move. But my yeah. partner lives in San Francisco, so I did, okay. you know, pack up and leave. Um, and it was an interesting time because it was post-election and I was seriously thinking about whether I wanted to stay uh, in the U.S. Um, I am uh, Singaporean. I have a, a, a yes, exactly. Uh, um, so um, yeah, it was, I mean, it seems yeah. far, far away, but it was a fraught time for many people, wasn't it? I bet. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, you have, you have such a light touch with the, with the setting. Like, I don't, I don't feel like the book is I mean, it's not dated, you know, it's not like, I mean, obviously it was just a few years ago, really, but you do, you do have a great job with as, as like a snapshot of that time. You know, not, not that I know exactly what that was like to be, like you said, when time was so fraught and, you know, all the bans on travel and this and that, but, but very interesting. And you got the nice snapshot of the time, but it's also like, it doesn't, it could have been other times. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like, it's, it won't be dated in seven years. Like, ah, what is, what does that even mean anymore? You know? <laughs> yeah. um, I wonder about some of the the seeds for the book just as a whole. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I just spent a lot of time talking about the research that I did for Bury What We Cannot Take. Yeah. And, you know, I know by now, having done this three times, that each book is in many ways a reaction to the book that came before it, mm. you know? And so 
I remember when I was working on Bury What We Cannot Take, I, you know, after a particularly grueling day of research, I turned to my partner and I said, uh, you know, the next book that I write is going to have to require zero research and it's going to have to be about the only topic that I already know about, designer handbags. <laughs> and I said that as a joke, like, you know, purely as a joke. Um, but then a couple months later, I came across an article in the Washington Post that detailed a real life con artist who had perfected this counterfeit handbag scheme. And it was a scheme that was so ingenious that I read it and I thought that could be in a novel. Mm. And that's kind of when the novel started to come together. But, you know, it started out as a reaction to the book. You know, I don't want to do research. I want to write about something that I feel very expert in. Sure. Um, and, uh, and then it morphed as novels do morphed into something completely different. Did, did you know right away you had something with that, with that article? Um, you know, I had, uh, initially I started it, I tried to start the novel from Winnie's point of view because mm -hmm. she's the mastermind of the crime. And because the article was centering the con artist okay, and it went nowhere in Winnie's uh, point of view. And then I realized it isn't Winnie's point of view. It's the mm -hmm. person she conned because that person has so much more at stake. And once I found Ava's voice, then I, I thought, okay, I think you're, you're really on to something. Yes. Well, great, great transition because the, uh, the, the voice, the point of view is, is really successful and interesting in the book. Um, it starts off with, I mean, most of the book is first person from Ava's point of view. And the first line is quote, the first thing I noticed was the eyes. And that's Ava talking about seeing Winnie after 20 years or maybe mm -hmm. 10 years. Yeah. Well, years. maybe talking to her for 10, so. mm -hmm. <laughs> right? But the, the details of the clothing were given out, you know, I never know how to pronounce it. Is it, is it Louboutin? Louboutins. Louboutins, right? <laughs> and I was thinking of like Cardi B or something like that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was, um, I was like, oh, I was like, okay. I, 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 was, I was expecting maybe like, you talk about the book being quirky and it is. I was like, okay, is this going to be like an American Psycho type book? Are you familiar with American Psycho? A little bit. I couldn't read so much of it because, it, you know, it was so over the top. It was just this idea of like, oh, we, you know, we label people by what they wear. So it's like, oh, you know, there's Jimmy and he's wearing, you know, Jimmy Choo this and that, you know, and it describes yeah, yeah, it yeah. like for like a page. So yeah. I thought maybe it was going that way. And it's, you know, it's not, but, you know, obviously labels and names matter throughout the book. Um, we learned pretty early on that Ava's talking to a detective who she literally calls detective. Yep. <laughs> Maybe part of the way that she's, you know, kind of manipulating things. I don't know. But, you know, you also, um, interesting um, craft, you don't use quotation marks. Was that, is that a big deal? Or is that kind of like, ah, it's just, you know, some I do is that's just my style. No, it, it wasn't. Uh, it's not something I do. <laughs> huh. This is the only book I've done it in. Okay. And you might have noticed that um, the first part is no quotation marks. Anytime Ava's talking, there's no quotation marks. Right. Anytime Winnie's talking, there are quotation marks. It's sure. kind of told in a quote unquote traditional um, style. And yes, that was intentional. Um, firstly, this is the first, I did not realize that readers had very strong opinions on quotation marks. This is my first exposure to huh. this. Um, so that's interesting. Just a kind of side note, yeah. um, never, uh, I, th I think I've read a lot of books without quotation marks mm -hmm. and it never really bothers me or, yeah. um, it seems like a stylistic choice or, or even a, a craft choice. Um, in my case, I wanted to plant the seed, and I don't want to give any spoilers, but I wanted to plant the seed that 
what she says Winnie is saying may not be a direct quote. And I think that is what was interesting to me about the confessional form is mm-hmm. that uh, confessions are, are, are obviously extremely uh, goal-oriented, right? The person speaking wants to either lessen their sentence, convince someone of their innocence mm-hmm. or go free. And so there's inherent unreliability in that, obviously, yes, yes. right? And so um, the quotation, the lack of quotation marks were kind of in that same vein where mm-hmm. she's saying, she's you know quoting Witty at length and immediately, you know, a, a reader would think like, oh, did Winnie really say that? Right, right. We were talking before we started recording about the about the cover and you talk about how, you know, the cover's so cool. You talk about how it's kind of like off kilter, right? Mm-hmm. And that that describes the book and that's that's a compliment. It's just like, it's, it's, not, it's not over the top, like crazy, zany, but it's just like, you know, you talk like the reliability of the narrator, of the characters, it's just a little bit off. It's it's realistic. This is the world we know, but it's like, ah, what what to believe, what not? You know, the ideas of manipulation or who's being manipulated. Um, just so interesting. Um, there are two parts yeah. of the book, right? Um, with part two, part two starts off with I think the first third person, which is from Winnie's mm-hmm. from Winnie's point of view, if that's possible, third person. But it's you know, yes. Um, and you know, it goes back and back and forth. It's not broken so neatly into part one is all first person and part two is third, but we get to know Winnie and her life more for sure in part two. So we have Ava and we have Winnie Fang. It's been 20 years since they uh, met in college at Stanford. And one of the quotes when Ava sees her again is quote, Winnie looked like someone who belonged Mm -hmm. the way she's dressed, her mannerisms. She didn't before in college, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. in college, Ava was like, eh, she wasn't outright mean to her, but was like, "Eh, I'm going to kind of distance myself from her. What was it about um, about Winnie that made Ava at first kind of want to like, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Ava is from a uh, upper middle class, predominantly white suburb. And there is, uh, you know, her entire life's project has been to belong Hmm. uh, or to assimilate. And um, I think among immigrants, this is a common emotion. Like, you know, that if you are the only Asian person in a room, you're going to automatically be compared to the other Asian person Uh. in the room. Right. And so like, for instance, in workplaces, I hear this a lot. If one Asian person fails, the other other Asian person in the room feels like they're somehow tainted by it because oh, they wow. know that people kind of view them with, uh, you know, with uh, maybe subconsciously, but mm. like they're viewed as kind of being a pair. Mm. And so there's this idea of, you know, um, perhaps keeping your distance because you don't want to be so tightly uh, to, to be seen as so tightly knit with the other person. And I think right. Ava feels that in college when, when Winnie comes in and she's clearly less cool, you know, she's, mm-hmm. she's very much um, an immigrant and you can see her kind of struggling to adapt culturally. Mm-hmm. And Ava almost feels like she'll be tainted by that and that people will start to see her in that, in the same way. Right. Um, you know, you do such a good job with Ava because you read a lot of the book and you're like, okay, she's, she hasn't changed much. She's still like, so like, not, you know, so unsure of herself and eh. but there are definitely parts of the book where it's like, whoa, okay. She's, she's a good actress at times because she, she's much more self-assured and, you know, on mm-hmm. the ball than, than we might think. Um, she's married to his full name is, I guess, Olivier. Is it, is yeah. it Ollie or how would you I say, say it? Yeah. Ollie. Ollie. Right. He's a, he's a surgeon. And they have a little one, Henri, <laughs> yes. who's like, what, two years old? <laughs> yeah. 
he uh he cries a lot <laughs> he doesn't talk he's, a lot he cries a lot he's a difficult child yeah right yeah Did, I, I don't think you know i don't you didn't make the kid a monster or anything like that i mean there's a lot of things that are very similar to you know what i've seen with <laughs> with my kids or others and how about that world of preschool yeah. that that's the scene you, you 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 write a scene where there's it's like a tryout for the preschool it's like a play date slash tryout. <laughs> that that itself could be a book or a, a you know a short film it was so well done you know you got the uh, it's, it's like they're just it's like they're watching like a like, you know, like a scouting combine for the NBA <laughs> or something you know like oh you got a 25 inch vertical leap and this and that um where does that not get... happen in sacramento is that a specifically bay area thing we're we're looking for a preschool for our second one covid has upended a lot of that where they both yeah. of them haven't you know especially my oldest who's going to the first grade now she didn't have a true preschool right you know so right, right. i i haven't seen it i was going to ask you i mean and i how exaggerated how much of that is hyperbole i don't think it's hyperbole <laughs> i don't think it's hyperbole at all i mean okay. I, I myself do not have children, but I have many friends who have children. And a lot of those details were taken directly from their preschool experiences. I mean, I think uh, it was no, the, the, you know, one of the um, things Ava says, it's harder to get into preschool than Harvard. That's a direct mm. quote from uh, one of my best, uh, closest friends here. I think it is extremely difficult to get into what people see as the right preschools mm. in the Bay Area. Um and uh, definitely the application thing. I've heard from multiple parents that you have to write these applications and you have to write essays about your child mm. that are even harder than writing your own essay because yeah. your child is two uh -huh. and has no kind of, you know, doesn't really have a, a philosophy on, <laughs> on um, you know, caring for others or something mm. like that. Um, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that is exaggerated, but I think that in the way of the Bay Area, <laughs> you can't, you know, there's so many things about the Bay Area that are, you know, you can't, it's hard to satirize the Bay Area because it right. already is, you know, certain things have already been taken to the kind of extreme. Right. Yes. Ne neither here nor there it doesn't necessarily add to the plot or anything, but I, I, I laughed out loud when you, when describing uh, Henri as having like a Rod Stewart type voice. <laughs> he cries a lot yeah you know i thought that was so people of a younger age may not may not get that reference but i was like that's oh, I got true that. that's, that's really, good stuff. <laughs> really good stuff but so you know so she so ava has you know issues at home for sure i mean her husband is is a, is a good guy he's he is the classic like workaholic and it's you know hard to figure out how much of that is i mean it seems to be legit mm -hmm. like he has to do that but he's he's gone a lot he takes an apartment you know, closer to Stanford than San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Ava's really worried about Henri, like, you know, he's developmentally, you know, is, is he just two and that's just the way it is or you know, yeah. all that. And, but anyways, when Winnie comes back into her life, she's also, Ava's also lost her mother just a few months before, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And so she's emotionally vulnerable to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, and she, like I said, she's amazed that Winnie's really, really put together, you know, when she wasn't necessarily... Winnie had had been part of an SAT cheating scandal that we found out later is not like maybe you thought it was exactly, but, and she'd been, she went back to China. We later find out that, you know, her family was just absolutely like, you know, stunned and shunned her in many ways. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but Winnie becomes part of her life through some manipulation on her part for sure. 
and we let you know we later learn out we later learned that she's you know she's got like private detectives and <laughs> using social media and she really you know knows a lot mm-hmm. about ava We get into the to the scam, which is the handbags, right? I'm treading so lightly in so many parts because there's so many cool plot twists here, <laughs> right? But I, th- you know, I think we can talk about the the scam. What is the scam that that Winnie is part of? Yeah, and you know, this is the scam that um, that I uh, was inspired by that Washington Post article. In fact, mm-hmm. not only inspired, but it is the actual scam. Okay. Because um, when I read it, I could not think of a more brilliant idea. <laughs> I was like, this is it. Like, I don't see how you could come up it? with yeah. anything better than this. But um, the scam is essentially that um, Winnie has access to these very high end super fakes, which are, you know, very high quality replica handbags that are made in China. And so what she does is she purchases a real authentic bag from a department store like Neiman Marcus. She swaps the super fake for the real bag, returns the super fake to the department store for a refund, and then sells the authentic bag online for the full price. And so it's double the profit. Not only that, um, by now, consumers are are, uh, understandably skittish about purchasing bags online. And so Mm -hmm. she sells the authentic bag online because if they were to take it to an expert to get authenticated, it would be the real thing uh-huh. versus a shopper who's shopping at a reputable department right. store. They're going to take it for granted that that bag is real. So, mm-hmm. you know, the scheme is pretty ingenious on multiple levels. Um, and that was the reason there was nothing to uh, change about it. Yeah. Oh, man. And so, um, you know, Winnie's in a rut in some ways because her her boss, Mac or Mock, mm-hmm. I, know you pronounce yeah. it. I right. say Mock, yeah. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, there's kind of a a bit of a sugar daddy connection there. I mean, she's, you know, she's, she's a strong woman in, in many ways and she is, but you know, there's a connection there. She'd met mm-hmm. him before and she, she gets involved in his, in his scheme, which, mm-hmm. which we later find out to me one, one of many, he needs a transplant. Mm-hmm. Ali is a doctor mm-hmm. you know, in Stanford, <laughs> one of the, you know, obviously the best, you know, hospitals in the world. There's all these kinds of, you know, deals and can you do this for me and you do a great job of like uh, of just you know different ways of painting their personalities and their circumstances at the time they keep making the the scam go on longer and longer right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i believe the first way that ava gets involved and she she did not want to get involved she first found out about the scam she said no way (laughs) heck no you're a cheater you know again going back to this no way she gets her credit cards cut off by her husband when she's back in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Visiting right? her family in Hong Kong. That's right. right. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I can make a little money. And here's where one of the themes of the book comes in for sure, where you know, this idea of saving face and, mm-hmm. and keeping up impressions, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like her family are incredible, like gossips, but they would talk a little bit. Yeah. How come her credit card has been declined here? What's How, going on with your marriage? What's going mm-hmm. on with your marriage? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So she's like, hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. She steps in and steps into this uh, to this racket here and she gets involved. And, so, and it's, you know, besides a couple, you know, comic relief moments with that 
I forget his name, but he's really, yeah. um, you know, the guy <laughs> who wouldn't hurt a fly, right? But she's yeah. a little bit scared, as, as you, could, you can understand. She gets it done and it's like, whoa, I have money in my account and this is pretty easy, right? Mm-hmm. Goes on, she gets deeper and deeper involved with that. And when he manipulates the heck out of her, Winnie is, is very smart in many ways, but you see maybe Ava's doing some manipulating too down the road. Mm-hmm. I love to talk about that theme of, it's related to like ideas of like sharing secrets. One of the lines was, you know, Ava has a brother, Gabe, who's the opposite of her in many ways. He's mm-hmm. so chill. He's charismatic. <laughs> he's laid back. You know, he does yeah. well, but he's not a striver. He's not yeah. trying to be, you know, on Fortune 500 company quote, right. skirting conflict is the Wong family religion, mm-hmm. right? And the idea of let's not put the ugly stuff out there, mm-hmm. you know, impressions matter. I wonder how much that was maybe forefront in your mind, at the forefront of your oh, mind yeah. you about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is Ava in a nutshell, you know, the way that I conceived of her. Um, she is somebody who needs to be in control, Mm-hmm. right? Like her entire life, she's uh, in control of her appearance. She's in control of her emotions. She's in control of who she marries, right? Like right. Uh, she married a doctor who went to Harvard. Like she did, ev- she does everything right. And I think that's what's interesting about her son is that he is the one person she cannot, con- the one aspect of her life that she cannot control. Right. And he's having these tantrums and he's, you know, he's developmentally a little bit delayed and she cannot sugarcoat or she tries her best but you know if your your kid is having a tantrum in the middle of the street there is nothing you can sugarcoat Mm -hmm. about that and so um I think that was interesting to me that was the reason why Henry was such an important character is because he's the thing that kind of breaks the facade and and kind of primes her for um for searching for another way when she realizes that um uh this kind of principle of control that she's built her entire life around is is false like it's impossible uh that's kind of when she thinks like okay what what else is there hmm i wonder she she is like you would say i guess first first generation second yes yes she's first generation with her parents being immigrants uh, immigrants right i wonder how much of like the impression giving off impressions is is related to an immigrant background i would imagine that that's part of it um you know, I would say I imagine it's part of it, but you know, I'm from Singapore. I'm not an immigrant. And in Singapore, it's also, you know, there's many, many communities where keeping up appearances right. is, uh, is um, so important. Right. Um, perhaps, I don't want to, you know, overgeneralize, perhaps in Asian cultures where, um, where family bonds are so important and where mm. your parent, you know, like where children are really still expected to kind of fulfill their parents' expectations, you know, mm. maybe it is, I don't think it, it, it uh, you know, I think it is heightened perhaps um, in that kind of close knit community. Um, but yes, I mean, I think we see that in uh, first generation immigrants from many, many countries exactly. in the U S right. Where they're exactly. kind of, you know, expected to do, you know, their parents made this huge sacrifice coming to the country. Uh-huh. And so they're expected to kind of use, you know, put their parents hard work, you know, make sure that that doesn't go to waste. And mm-hmm. that is a huge, a huge burden. Hmm. I, I, not being an immigrant myself, but I, I think of like my students, we watched um, Hassan Minaj has a, oh, yes. Skin, right? Yes. He's a, more or less a Sacramento guy. We'll accept him. He's right out in the Davis there. Oh, right? I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah that was a fantastic special. Oh, so he tells that incredible story about September 12th. Yeah. Right. 
I mean, that incredible story where, you know, just straight racism and they, they hit the, the guys hit the, the, the windows out of the car yeah. and he's pissed off and he's, you know, this is not fair. This is not right. And his dad is just there sweeping up, up the glass. glass. Right. Yeah. And when, when he said that line, which I believe is in Hindi, he says, he said, um, you know, what will people think basically? And yeah. my students, you know, it, many of them, um, you know, children of immigrants from many different countries was like, whoa, like that, that just resonated so much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think also, you know, what really resonates too is the fact that the next generation wants more, right? Okay. Like, so his dad yeah. has that reaction and then Hassan Minaj is like, no, this is my home. Like I will not accept right. this. Um, right. And, you know, that is something that I was interested in exploring as well in the novel, because so much of it is about questioning the model minority myth. Mm. And I think, you know, Ava's parents probably uh, felt grateful that, the, that they were considered a model minority, you know, like yeah. that um, we're accepted because people see us as hardworking and some, you know, law abiding. And mm -hmm. you're so lucky to be a model mm -hmm. minority versus, you know, Ava's generation, which, you know, be parallel to my generation, which understands the kind of limitations of that myth and mm -hmm. why it can be harmful. Well, you subvert so many of those myths. Like there's that, there's that great scene. Um, remind me of the housekeeper's name. Maria. It is Maria. Maria is a really interesting character. Ava is kind of like, you know, I, I'm not one of those liberals who's, you know, like, oh no, we really are family. Like <laughs> we really are family. Right. And yeah. Maria is the only, pretty much the only one who can really calm down Henri. Yes. Right. So there's some great scenes there, but, but you really subvert that myth where, um, where Ava come, this is later in the book, and Ava basically says, you know what, I'm, I'm here for the family now. I've been a little bit scattered, and I'm here yeah. for my family, and I want to do things the right way. And Maria, who was always very, like, quiet, and she's like, ha, she laughs the heck out of it. Like, yeah. come on now. Like, you're not talking <laughs> to white people here. Like, I'm a fellow, you know. She's like, don't this. fool me with your good immigrant. Oh, that was so good. <laughs> yeah. That was like, man, I'm glad uh, you liked that moment. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, again, treading lightly about the plot, but, you know, Ava gets more and more involved. A, you know, from like a foot soldier to like almost like mm -hmm. a partner, right? Mm -hmm. She makes a couple trips back to to Hong Kong to China. You know, she does have family in Hong Kong, so mm -hmm. she's able to. And you know, definitely the the marriage continues to get drained for sure. Hinges on this liver transplant. You know, Mac all of a sudden has was it five hundred thousand dollars he wants to donate <laughs> to donate to the hospital? Yeah, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> but we just we're always off kilter a bit because. I think right away, you know, we, we go towards Ava and her point of view where we empathize with her and, oh, Winnie, oh boy. But later in the book, Winnie also becomes somebody who is worthy of our, our empathy or our sympathy, mm -hmm. right? And it's just such a cool, you know, tap dance kind of thing that you do with that. I just want to ask you about a couple other things. The, the idea of, you know, money and status, obviously. Mm -hmm. yeah. So much, so much of, I mean, counterfeit means so much. I guess I would ask you what, you know, I think maybe sometimes authors are like, ah, oh, do I have to explain every single thing about, but, but, you know, counterfeit, I mean, what kind of, what, you, what does that mean to you in, in the context of this book? Yeah. I mean, that is the question, right? Uh -huh. Like in one of the, you know, one of the characters says, you know, what makes a real handbag real and a fake handbag fake yes. if they are identical and indistinguishable, right? you know? And I think because it's a book about handbags, it's easy for people to kind of wag their fingers and be like, what a stupid thing to spend money on. Uh -huh. But, you know, I was thinking about how like all everybody has 
there are many things that are status symbols, but that we think of as having more value. And a lot of that is arbitrary. And so, you know, I was thinking a lot about paying for a college education, for instance. Yes. And, you know, Winnie says in the book, you know, my handbag is the same as your Stanford law degree. And mm. Ava's like shocked. <laughs> but, you know, I was thinking about all these studies that have come out in the past couple of years where I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they, you know, they track high school students who say got into Harvard mm. and a, a percentage of them go to Harvard and a percentage of them go to a state school because they okay. want to spend less money. And then 10 years later, they come back and see where those students are. And invariably, the high school students that went that got into Harvard, but went to a state school do just as well uh, as the, uh, the students that went to Harvard. And so then you would think the obvious conclusion is, well, it's not Harvard, it's the student that sure, is sure. making their own success. But most of us would still say it's worth it to pay for Harvard. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot of things like that, that we kind of that society says aren't frivolous and that mm -hmm. has deemed worthy of money. But I think one of the things the book does is kind of poke holes at that and kind yes. of show that, you know, there, it is impossible to be kind of 100 percent rational in right. our choices. Right. Well, I mean, in the, in the same way as like, and I, I laugh like not out of like humor, but like out of like, instead of crying, right? I mean, you can't really satirize like Trump's, you know, his time. Like you cannot satirize, yeah. like truth is stranger than fiction type of thing, right? Yeah. But you talk about how it's hard to satirize like a lot of Bay Area living, yes. the, whole, the whole preschool idea, right? Yeah. But I mean, but I mean, that extreme, if we'll call it that, it, you know, points out the idea of this, of this, these counterfeits, right? I mean, he literally like, you know, he literally cries for like hours and hours straight. I'm talking about Henri when he's at school. Yes. And yes. he's too young. And like he said, you know, he can't put together a mission statement or his own <laughs> philosophy. But it's like, you know, the, we're going to get him on that pipeline. It's going to be this preschool and then, you know, right. this and right. Right. And so, so many ideas of counterfeit. Right. Um, Ava, like, you know, her whole life, for the most part, she's been done things the right way. Mm -hmm. And she really does find, I mean, a lot of freedom in not being that, I guess, in being, being her authentic self. And the question is, what is her authentic self, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, on that note, I was thinking a lot, too, about, um, you know, in our society, how we have kind of sanctioned forms of cheating versus mm -hmm. illegal cheating, right? Sure. You know, like, especially, you know, we're living in a time where uh, of extreme inequality, um, where uh, workers at a company, you know, their bosses can make 5,000 times what they yes. make. Like, you, you know, it is very easy to feel like you're living in a system that is rigged because you are, and, right? Like you can feel like life is a big, one big con. Um, and we would never say that, um, you know, people on Wall Street are cheating, right? Because they're functioning within the law for some of them are cheating, but, you know, like some of them are functioning within the law, but, you know, there are a lot of sanctioned forms of, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. right? And so um, that was another question, right? You know, the things that we decide are counterfeit there is no kind of absolute scale, right? Mm -hmm. Like for what is deemed cheating and what isn't. Right. There's a lot of interesting things and it's more subtle. It's not, it's not hitting you over the head with it, but there's a lot about, you know, ethical production. Yes. I don't know. I don't, this just came to my mind. There's, there's a book, Roberto Saviano is an Italian journalist. He wrote, I don't know. He wrote Gomorra. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, attacking the Camorra, the Italian, the Neapolitan mafia. And mm -hmm. I mean, he's one of those guys he's on, he's got 24 hour security and the whole deal. 
but he writes a lot about you know about the Camorra and, and and garbage and all the, the the criminal things they do. There's a there's an incredible scene where there's a a working class Italian who's watching TV and he sees Angelina Jolie wearing the dress that he made. Right. Right. Yeah. And you know in the book you talk about how even like in, in Milan or part of Italy there are probably more sweatshops than you know yeah. China you know is rumored to have so many and all that right. Yeah. Right. There's the 14 year old girl that Ava brings up under detective, you know, with the detective. Yeah. Goes, oh, my gosh. She, you know, she had two fingers lost. Yeah. We're not sure if that, yeah. how true that yeah. was. Right. But I just wonder about, you know, I, you know, your iPhones and everything. If we really think about it, I mean, there's just these are 12 year old kids, as one of the comedians said, who do this professionally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this idea of like, are we just happy enough to get it cheap that we're OK with that? I'm rambling a little bit here, but I wonder what your thoughts, you know, how ethical production and, and those kind of things came into play. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was something I was definitely interested in looking at. I don't think you can talk about, uh, you know, manufacturing in China without without talk, but really manufacturing um, everywhere. I mean, I think mm -hmm. one of the points the book makes is that we in the West use made in China as kind of shorthand for shoddy, you know, shoddy conditions. Right, right, right. Um, and that's. Um, that's not true. There are many state-of-the-art factories in China. Hmm. There are many sweatshops in Los Angeles, Manhattan, and in Italy, right? And so, you know, anytime you paint with a broad brush, you don't capture the nuances or the complexity of a situation. Um, so that's one on the one hand. On the other hand, without regulations, yes, of course, people get left behind. And, you know, hmm. um, there are Undoubtedly, there are so-called black factories in China where, you know, that are legitimate sweatshops where um, workers are not getting paid and some of them are children. Of, yes, that exists. Mm -hmm. um, and then the counter argument to that is that that exists. Like you said, Apple, um, Apple factories have been called out for working conditions. We saw that uh, horrible fires in Bangladesh where yes. the, the collapse of uh, fires and then I think collapse of the buildings as well. Uh -huh. And those were brands that were um, manufacturing for well-known American uh, and European clothing designers. And so um, I think the situation is complicated. Um, I think that the only thing we can say is that if you are paying a very small amount of money for whatever it is you're buying, somebody is getting exploited right. along the way. I right. think that is the only thing we can say for certain. Right. I mean, I think if both of us look out our window now, within the next five minutes, we'd see an Amazon Amazon Prime truck, right? right? And, right. you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If you you're- know, No restroom if, breaks and those kind of things, right? If you're getting it. free delivery in two hours <laughs> and up. not paying anything extra, you know, somebody is getting exploited along the way, yeah. Oh, totally. I want to maybe end with talking about, and, and to say like, you know, feminism or women is, is too broad of a topic, but really interesting you know, themes about like women's agency, right? Where Ava is, Ava had her own job and all that. She hated it, right? But, you know, she's not like a kept woman or anything like that at all. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, just the idea that like, that, that her and Winnie are the masterminds on one side of it, right? And again, without giving away the ending, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, this idea of like, I wonder how, you know, let's say it was switched and that Ollie was the one going over to, to mm -hmm. Asia every once in a while. She didn't, you know, um, Ava wasn't going a lot, but there were yeah. some long trips, right? Yeah. I mean, I, 
I can pretty much know the answer, right? The man right. would be like, oh, well, you know, you know, you know how it this is. This is what I have to do. This yeah. is what I have to do. That's what he has to do, right? But yeah. for a woman to do that, for a mother to do that, for a mother to leave Henri behind, right? Yeah. So I wonder how much of, of that, again, just the idea of like women having agency and, and wanting to live their own way and like the double standards came into play. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I um, capture uh, that, that that I uh, set out to write about that, but that it just is the reality of being a, a woman, even a very, uh, as you say, a very high powered woman. She, you know, made more money than Ollie right. for a lot of their career. But that is the reality. And that is, you know, what I have seen and what I have felt. Um, I think that um the that Ava and Winnie's genders were integral to the scheme like that this could not have been a scheme carried out by two uh men of a different you know different race or mm. or, or you know like I think it was specifically um, I was interested specifically in the kind of Asian American female stereotype of like uh-huh. the submissive harmless uh you know uh almost invisible mm-hmm woman and and i think that their gender is kind of you know part and parcel of that Mm -hmm. well yeah i mean you made it that i mean that was a huge part of their success with their schemes right was like you said um unassuming oh it can't be them and and then also again kind of subverting things there was you know the part where there was a bit of a crisis and it was like oh shoot and when he was looking into hiring like white women yes for different reasons yeah, and that was actually, you know, you asked about what part of the book was inspired by the pandemic. And that part came directly out of my experience um, during the pandemic, watching how um, Asian Americans went morphed overnight from model minority to uh, people responsible for uh, passing on the, the Kung flu or whatever uh, obscene right. term was used, you know? And that is the model minority myth is that when you are um, useful to society, we hold you up. And when you're no longer useful, we flip and you mm. are, you know, discarded of. And I think that is the kind of uh, duality that that, uh, that particular moment captures. Right. And yeah, so, I mean not just a book about a certain time, not just a book about a certain industry. I mean, you know, like, like you're talking about the flipping, obviously, unfortunately, we've seen that throughout history. Yeah. Right. Where it's, you yeah. know, depending on time, there's all, you know, yes. scape, scapegoats, whatever we need, whatever we need as a society, you know, we can use right. a particular stereotype in that way. Right. Yeah. So here's my, my, my clumsy analogy or whatever. The book is a counterfeit meaning it is not just about, again, these simple things. It is, there are so many complex themes. Yeah. It is such a page turner. Like, yeah. man, I read this book so quickly. Like, it just like, wow. Um, leaving, you know, leaving some of the plot out because we have to, I want people to really enjoy this. You know, the TV rights are out there. What a great TV show or movie this would be. And the book is always better than the movie, you know. <laughs> right? But um, just congratulations on a book that, again, you know, is, is a thinking person's book. It's also just like action packed. And, you know, some people can only do one or the other. And you were. Oh, able thank to, you to so much. Those. That is such a such a compliment. I will say that I love your your uh, description of it. Um, an editor that I spoke to early in the process described it as a Trojan horse of a mm, book. Yes. And I, yes. I kind of love that. That it's very similar to what, what you were saying. So thank oh, you. That's much, much better said. <laughs> I, I much better said. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about future projects, including, you know, um, how much, you know, like, are you a screenwriter now or is that mostly kept to other people? Or? Um, no. So I'm not um, involved in the adaptation. I, I okay. do have an executive producer credit just so that I can right. um, be, uh, you know, 
part of the group, but I, uh-huh. I um, was not that interested in adapting uh, the book myself, um, partly because I've never done an adaptation yeah. and also partly because um, I feel like I, uh, you know, put my soul into this book and I, mm-hmm. I didn't want to have to do it again, but this <laughs> time with 20 people, you know, in a room and having, to shoulder, just, yeah, yeah. and having to justify every choice that I made, uh... it doesn't sound like a, a, a great use of time, <laughs> like mm-hmm. a, you know, a great use for my spirits either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very happy with the team that I'm working with and I'm so excited to see what they do with it, but I, oh, I think cool. a little distance is good. Oh, nice. Do you, um, I mean, I know again, congratulations, savor it, live it up. I wonder if you um, you want to talk about any future projects maybe. Oh, um, sure. I mean, I'm working on a novel uh, that is very different from this one as mm-hmm. you, your listeners maybe get a sense. Each of my books have been quite different. Yes. Um, this is a book that is uh, set in the dirty cut world of pediatric research, pediatric cancer research. (laughs) It's set at a cancer lab um, at a Harvard-like institute. And um, I describe it as kind of succession, but with nerds. With with nerves or nerds? (laughs) Nerds. Okay. (laughs) All right. That's a nice pitch. I like that. (laughs) All right. It's the Uh, early stages. So very, very, very early. Yes. Um, and tell us about, uh, you know, where to where to buy the book, if you have any favorite bookstores. I mean, I know it's available everywhere. Favorite bookstores. Um, any other uh, author events coming up? Um, let's see. So um, signed copies. I believe the Booksmith in San Francisco might okay. still have signed copies. Um, and they ship for free if you're over if it's over $50 so they can ship anywhere. Nice. Um, I do have um, a, a, another local event in San Francisco on the 11th. All of it is on my website, by the way. I'm pretty good about um, keeping that That's updated. Pretty so simply, it, kirstenchen.com. Exactly. Okay. My name is uh, idiosyncratically spelled K I R S T I N. But other than that, kirstenchen.com. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Congratulations. So cool to talk to you, like in the middle of all of this, you Likewise. know, in the middle of the, the fun times. I know you work so hard on it and, um, you know, just congratulations on the success. Thanks so much for talking to me from your lab and, and, and letting me, uh, you know, peek into the creative process a little bit. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pete. This was a pleasure. Pleasure for me as well. And thank you so much to Kirsten Chen for her time. And I wish her continued great luck with all of her writing. You can now subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. And especially as we just talked about Amazon, let's let's keep Amazon and maybe even Spotify out of the mix if we can. Let's go to Apple, which also we talked about. Ah, darn it. <laughs> Ethical production. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will PO1. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look and an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills at Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 135 with Jose Antonio Vargas a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Emmy-nominated filmmaker, and Tony-nominated producer. A leading voice for the human rights of immigrants, his best-selling memoir, Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen, was published by HarperCollins in 2018. His second book, White is Not a Country, will be published by Knopf in 2023. The episode will air on July 26th. For now, 
Thanks again for listening. I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Kirsten Chen, whose works like Counterfeit give you chills at will.